Fools dance where angels fear to tread. I told that to Steve Hofer a couple weeks ago, and he said, just make sure you know which one you are. I have no idea why he wanted me to be, sure, wanted me to be so sure that I was a fool, but I, uh, I, I can receive that. Um, it, relax. Paul called him, himself a fool. I can do that. You can, you can give me that. Self-deprecation. Um, I do want to talk about, as I mentioned last Sunday, I want to talk about um, pastoral compensation. But this has been a, you know, if you set out to go to the Grand Canyon, there's probably a lot of other things between here and there. So there has been a lot of other ground that I thought it would be wise to cover as part of this conversation. It's certainly an awkward conversation. It's awkward for everyone. I'm not going to try to try to make it not awkward. The best way I know how to make things not awkward is just, just to approach it head on, just to, just to talk about it. So that's what I'm going to try to do. But first, I want to start with, um, with some review. It, for the record, I'm not campaigning for a job. I was asked that question a couple times last week. I think it was in jest, but just to be sure, I don't want there to be any doubt in your mind as to my intent. So starting off with some review from the last week. Over the past, we'll say 20 years, as I mentioned last week, it's been fashionable, it's become more fashionable to, you could say, throw dirt on the church. The failures of the church are very public and very obvious. There are many people. You don't have to look far, you don't have to look wide. You can find people right here in this room that have had bad experiences with church and bad experiences with church leadership. They, those stories abound. And it's interesting, in business, I think, I forget the exact metric, but I believe that there's a, like a 10 to 1 ratio. That for every, that, that um, people that have bad experiences with your business are 10 times more likely to share that bad experience, whether it's on social media, a Google review, they're far more likely to be far more vocal with that bad experience than they would be with a similarly scaled good experience. And the injustice of that always strikes me a little bit backwards. You know, you bend over backwards to serve somebody and, 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 and you know, they hardly talk about it, but man, if you miss and you don't do a good job, they're going to tell the world. And I wish it could be op- the opposite. But it's the same in church many times. The bad experiences that we have in church, we're far more likely to talk about it. We're far more likely to repeat that story over lunch with a friend uh, to the next church, wherever. We're far more likely to tell that story again and again and again throughout our lives than we would be to tell the good story, the time whenever the people in your church were there in your time of crisis and need. And so part of what I felt like I needed to do as as part of this conversation was just start by restoring dignity to the church. I love the church. I love this church, but this is not just to this church. This is to the church around the world that is faithfully serving Christ and demonstrating the body of the, the work of Christ. Church is there when no one else is. 
I don't know, five years ago, maybe ten, five, between five and 10 years ago, I had hit a, a tough spot in my life. I felt like I hit the ceiling in my capacity as a dad, as a husband. I was deeply discouraged and I needed somebody to talk to. And somebody said, why don't you go and see this guy? And he was a counselor in Charlotte. So I connected up with him, we had coffee, and we had a wonderful conversation. And we got around to me paying this guy because I figured that's just part of the, the, the thing that you do. And he said, no, you, you, we don't accept payment. I'm like, oh, listen. He said, my church specifically has hired me for the purpose of serving the community. That's my job. What I just did for you is my, that's, that's what I'm, I'm, I have been hired to do this by my church. And I thought, what a gift for a church to give to their community. And it, it was, it, was um, it, it stood out in my mind as just a powerful thing for churches to do. I've, I've been listening to a podcast that I, I found recently. Uh, has anyone ever heard of the Compelled podcast? Is that the ring a bell to anybody? You really just write and take a note down. And whenever you have service or you, you have some internet, go subscribe to the Compelled podcast. It's phenomenal. It's just a, it's a podcast of stories. And these are stories of people that have been positively impacted uh, by Christ in some way. But the common theme through all of these people's stories that I hear again and again and again, the common theme is a church. Somewhere there was a church just faithfully serving Jesus. There was a pastor. There were people in a church. There was a youth pastor. One, one story in particular, a woman... Uh, had a brief exposure to church over just, I don't know, two years. And she subsequently, her family moved away, whatever. It was a very tough situation. She went in the military. Life really got tough. I don't know, was it 29 years later? She, or maybe it was 19, one of those two. She was in a situation where she desperately needed someone to be a friend. And she couldn't think of a single person on the face of the earth that was willing to be a friend to her. Just the kind of friend that just sits there and listens to you. She couldn't think of one person. And suddenly she thought, ah, way back, 19 or 30 years ago, whatever it was, there was that youth pastor and his wife, and they were so kind. I wonder if she would be a friend to me. And she reached out to this person, found, found her on Facebook, and uh, that led to a relationship. It led to her uh, receiving what she desperately needed at that, in that season of her life, which was God's grace. Had it not been for a church faithfully giving and serving, this woman would have never encountered Jesus. Well, I shouldn't say never. Never know the God can use other means. But... My point is the church is doing incredibly valuable work. Leadership is a platform. I talked about this a lot last week. Leadership is a platform. And as I was thinking about that further in the last week, I realized that leadership is a platform that either the leader serves as there to support him or they see it as a platform on which they lift up others. It's either, it's one of those two. The platform either exists to serve the leader or it exists to serve those that they lead. Leaders exist to call out and elevate the gifts in the body 
so that ministry can flow. The body is designed to be an organism that ministers to itself. I spent a little bit more time on that last week. I had lunch with Michael Shirt one day, I don't know, Wednesday maybe, and he's, we kind of got into this conversation a little bit, and he, he pointed out something that I thought I should clarify, that leadership, servant leadership in particular, is not just being a pushover. It's not just avoiding conflict. Sometimes we can mistakenly assume that someone is being a servant leader because they are avoiding conflict. And just because someone is a good leader doesn't mean that they'll never push buttons. It doesn't mean that they'll never um, maybe introduce discomfort into a relationship. In fact, people that avoid conflict or have an unhealthy conflict avoidance may not, it may look like they're being a servant leader just because they're so nice, but it may just be because they're afraid of the, the discomfort of actually leading well. So one of the important questions to ask inside of church leader, leadership, but really inside of any leadership context, is who are you there to serve? And particularly in church leadership, we have to see ourselves first as servants of Jesus, because otherwise we'll, something will kind of get off skew. And I believe it's First Timothy, Paul talks about church leadership, and then he talks about the church, and he says the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The church exists to serve the, tr- the truth. Uh, and I think that's an important distinction. But just as leaders have obligations, and they're very real obligations, and we talked about those last week, congregations also have responsibilities toward their leaders. The New Testament does talk about churches compensating ministers. And in many churches, that is as far as the obligations of the congregation go. It stops there. So in other words, they see, it's easy for churches to see their primary obligation as giving a good compensation package to their pastor. However, I would say the bigger obligation that a congregation has towards their leaders is to allow themselves to be led. That is the bigger obligation, to allow themselves to be led. It's very, very difficult as a leader to elevate and call out the gifts in the body if no one wants their gifts to be used. That's a a hard spot to put somebody in. Hey, go and lead, but we don't actually want to be led. Many years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I had this kind of epiphany that my default answer anytime something happened inside of church or anytime there was a request that came at me, my default answer was no. Hey, will you do this thing? Nah. Hey, will you do this? Will you help out? Nah. And all of a sudden, I was like, I wonder, you know, and it was, it was all me just protecting my time or my comfort level or whatever. But all of a sudden, I, I had this, 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 this moment where I realized that my default answer could just as easily be yes. Yeah, maybe it creates more discomfort, but I realized that, that, for the people that are asking me to do things, how frustrating it must be to be in their role where they go to person after person after person. Hey, can you read the scripture on Sunday morning? Nope. Hey, can you read the scripture on Sunday morning? Nope. Hey, can you read the scripture on Sunday morning? Nope. That's frustrating. Uh, who's, who's doing that? Uh, <laughs> I meant who's asking, not who's saying no. But, uh, 
Anyway, Conrad, is that, is that what happens, Conrad? I'm not trying to put you on the spot. But anyway, uh, I, I, I don't know if that's what's happening or not for sure, but that's the things that can easily happen inside of church where we, we easily say go and we look at our schedule and we look at our, pre, our, our predefined obligations and we say, no, there's no way that I'm taking on something else because we want to protect what's most important to us. And so my challenge to you is to figure out what, that, what is that thing that's most important to you. Last week, we talked about Hebrews 13, 17, where it says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. And just how that's a verse that probably has been twisted many, many times and maybe people can have, easily have, and rightfully have a little bit of distaste about. And I made the statement that if you can't trust someone because they're in church leadership, that maybe there's at least a chance that some of the problem may be that you're carrying something with, the, with you that you need to release. I absolutely know that there are deep scars that have been left by leaders when sometimes they operate more out of a spirit of control and, 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 and maybe they can be blind to their own mistakes inside of that, inside of their own leadership. So I know those scars exist. But if there is a resistance towards pastoral leadership, maybe that could be a reaction to some of the things that you've experienced in your past and maybe you could be robbing your, you and your family of a gift that God wants to give you in this season of your life. So who do you have in your life that would faithfully and rightfully challenge you? Who do you have in your life that will challenge you? Who do you have in your life that will look into your eyes and say, I love you enough to tell you the truth? And in the short term, those are could be painful words to hear. Those could be painful situations to walk through. But in the long term, they could be some of the best gifts that you've ever been given. And of course, that in that context, that doesn't always have that doesn't have to be a church leader. In fact, I, I would love for for us all to be somewhat you know uh, giving and receiving that way. It doesn't have to be a church leader, but many, many, many times it will be. And maybe it would be more if you fostered that kind of a relationship with church leaders. So enough on that introduction. I want now to maybe take a step back in history, just, just briefly, not too far. I want to raise a hands of who has started attending this church within the last 10 years. Wow. So goodness, I don't know, is that at least probably 60% of the people in this room started attending here in the last uh, 10 years. That's going to become more relevant. I, I, I want to talk about this church's history a little bit. Now, I'm not eminently qualified to do that. There are other people in this room that could probably do it better. Scott, you're here. You, you could tell, I'm sure, some, some stories from, from many years ago, which is, so it, it's interesting you, you showed up this morning. Um, so you can, you can maybe correct, correct me on anything I say wrong. But first of all, in, inside of churches, there are really there are there are three main styles of church government. Number one is Episcopal, Episcopal. Number two is Presbyterian, and third is Congregational. And you can see those 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 definitions. Episcopal, the ultimate authority rests in one man, whether it's a bishop or a pope or a pastor. Presbyterian, the ultimate authority rests in a board of elders. Congregational, the ultimate authority rests in the congregation. Now, 
A lot of churches that you may not think are Episcopal are actually. There are many Baptist churches that would definitely not consider themselves to be Episcopal churches, yet the way that their churches operate, it's really one man, and it's the pastor who runs the church. This, the, movement of, the, move, the movement of churches that spawned this particular church began, in my opinion, with a strong congregational style of church leadership. And again, in my opinion, all of this is my opinion. I, I don't know this as 100% fact. We could debate it later. But I think the reason that we erred so far on the congregational size, side is because no one wanted elder rule or bishop rule because it was seen as unhealthy. And so we overcorrected, and we went straight into the congregational rule ditch. We went from one ditch where maybe one person had far too much authority to another ditch where a congregation had far too much authority. Congregational rule has a lot of appeal to people that have experienced spiritual abuse or church leadership that uh, has failed to operate with a strong paradigm of, of giving and taking, of reciprocity, where where the church leaders see themselves there to serve the church, and the church is, is in some ways giving back to their leaders. But what, what ends up happening in, in many congregational uh, rule styles of church government is the congregation reserves all of the, the authority, but they place all of the responsibility on their leaders. So the authority all rests in the congregation, but the responsibility of how it turns out and what ends up happening, man, church leaders are, are blamed for it all. And they, there's an intense amount of pressure because they don't have the agency actually to actually be spiritual leaders in, in that context. So they, they have no authority to execute, but they have full responsibility for outcomes. And then the congregation just kind of sits back with this almost giddy excitement, like, man, I wonder how this is all going to work out. And, and, and then, and then, and then when, when people burn out, then it's like a surprise, like, oh, I wonder what, what, what's wrong, you know? Um, so in, in, in this particular church, I, I believe we started out as a strong congregational rule style of church government. And I say that because of the number of hours that I recall spending in what we called brothers' meetings back, back then um, on a monthly basis where we would hash and rehash to ad nauseum extent um, some of the most minute details of church life. Uh, we spent hours trying to achieve some semblance of unity but it was not sustainable. It was not a sustainable way to run a church. Most of the authority on spiritual matters was vested in the congregation via aforementioned brothers' meetings. And most, most, of, uh, most of the authority was vested in the congregation, but the responsibility was vested in the leadership team, which really was just a couple people. Um, in that season, probably, I don't know, was that 15 ish years ago, maybe 20 years ago, no, it wasn't 20 years, probably 15 years ago. In that season, we realized it wasn't working, and we, we realized that we needed to take a step back, that there were people that were burning out, there were people that were working. Uh, it just wasn't, uh, the, the church leadership structure wasn't working the way it needed to work. And so there were a bunch of people that were kind of asked to get together and put together 
you know, do some surveys of the church and, and figure out what, what would work better. And I apologize to all of you, anybody here who is visiting, because I know this doesn't, this is totally irrelevant for you, but maybe it's interesting in some context. So we put together this report and some of the things in the report looking back on, I think are embarrassing and some of the things I think are really, really valuable. Part of what and, and by the way, I was asked to be part of that group of guys. That's why I'm, I'm, I remember it so well. Looking back, I think the only reason I was probably asked to be part of that group of guys is because they needed somebody that could type. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I was there and I did type the report and I still happened to have it. And so, that's, so I actually looked at it. Uh, so as part of that whole process, we turned this, we, we really made a switch in the way that church, the church, this church was run. And I think it was a healthy switch. We, instead, of, instead, of, uh, instead of having just one or two key people, we decided to have a board of elders. And that's so, part of that in that season was when we went from having like two people in church leadership to 10 people in church leadership. Uh, that's, that's an exaggeration, but that's the way it kind of felt at the time. And we encouraged that inside of that leader team that, that all of those leaders would operate according to their gifting that we wouldn't just put this blanket expectation that everybody just follow, you know, carries the same load or we just do the same thing all the time, but we recognize the gifts of the body that, pe- that God has given, and we encourage those gifts to be set in a, in a way that they would serve the church. And additionally, back then, we decided, hey, one, there is one person that's going to have to kind of lead out, and we want that key person to rotate every three years. That way, there's never just one person that carries the entire load of church leadership for years and years and years and ends up burning out, or maybe things get lopsided. That was, that was the original goal. And I think it's a unique model. I, I, I'm not saying that there aren't many other churches that work that way, but I just haven't seen them. And I do think that part of part of... Uh, one of the strengths, I would say, that we have, and I'm not saying it's a, hmm, I'd be careful how I say that, but I do think that that leadership model has served us well over the last 15 years. I think it's been, it's been positive in general. I'm not saying there's not still weaknesses or not still ways we need to grow, but in general, it has been positive from my perspective. At that time, we also made this decision to form, to, to, uh, have a team of deacons. So a team of elders and a team of deacons and those two teams would work completely, uh, for the most part, separately. That they would have separate separate responsibilities. And I I do think that is a biblical model. And I'm I'm just going to read some of the things that we wrote. This was 15 years ago, roughly. I don't know, I don't remember the exact date, uh, but roughly 15 years ago. Some of the exact things that we wrote at that point was that we would have a team of elders whose jobs would be to guide and lead in the way of truth, to shepherd the church, to watch out for the souls of the church, to teach and preach with practical admonition for the church, and to pastor, counsel, minister, and disciple the church. And again, we were very clear at that point that that, that those responsibilities wouldn't just rest on everybody, but the unique gifts that existed inside of that team would be leveraged as people were gifted. And then there would be a team of deacons and they would do more practical things like uh, and being involved in finances, whether it's financial uh, uh, help, uh, church treasury, 
care for the church property, provide assistance where needed with, for widows or single mothers. And so that was, at that time, that was these, these, these two teams that would work in kind of uh, some, some, some degree of collaboration, but, but really separately. And I think from my perspective, Daniel and I have really appreciated not have, not as deacons, it's made, I don't know, it's made it easy for us to be more careful of, of the, pra- or, or to take better care of the practical needs of the church, um, not being involved in, in some of the more uh, spiritual needs of the church. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it, it, it has seemed healthy, at least to us. So as part of that shift, we began to have fewer brothers meetings where the congregation in general uh, duked it out on these you know, various issues and, and, and where the, 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 the team of elders uh, exer- walked more in, in a, with, with a little more authority, just uh, kind of charting a course and a vision. I think the challenge that we face now is how to make sure that that, that vision is, is clear, make sure we uh, make sure that that's clearly communicated to the church and make sure that there's alignment. Make sure everybody, you know, it's not, I don't think we ever want to be in a situation where there's just, um, you know, a team of, you know, where it's just all authority resting on a board of elders and a congregation has, has, has you know, are somewhat victims to their leadership. I don't think that's what we're trying to pursue. Uh, but so I do think there has to be some, some clearly stated vision and mission and, and agreement on where we're going as a church. So I'm not trying to say that this, the way that we operate is, is, is the best or that we don't need to tweak it or change it. I just thought as I was really thinking through this and studying through it, that this is important history to, for, for you guys to understand, especially since we have such a large percentage of people that really probably have no idea that this is, this is part of our evolution. So with all of that background, let's move to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Is it Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not even we more. Excuse me. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. All right, so there's a lot there and truly... Um, uh, yeah, that's where the, where the rubber meets the road, right? What do soldiers, farmers, shepherds, 
oxen, priests, and pastors all have in common. They all have a right to be paid for their work. That's what this passage says. Soldiers, farmers, shepherds, oxen, priests, and pastors all have a right to be paid for the work. In verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In Matthew 10, 9, Jesus sent out his disciples and he tells them to take this gospel of the kingdom out. And he says, he tells them, don't take any provision with you because the laborer deserves his food. So I want to make just a few practical observations and maybe principles from some directly from this text and some kind of from, from other texts. But the first one is the spiritual vitality of a church is not related to the amount a church pays its pastor. Compensating a pastor is not a shortcut to a church being a body and the body doing the work of ministry. In, in this passage in, second, in 1 Corinthians and in other places, Paul compares compens- the, the compensation that you make as a minister of the gospel to a soldier, a farmer, a shepherd, or ox, who, by the way, none of which were getting rich from their labors. These were all very, um, you could say, um, none of these were prestigious careers. He even mentions, he even mentions priests in, this, in, First Corinthians, in the First Corinthians text who definitely were not getting rich in their career. So I just want to be clear that um, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to overcompensate here. I think there is, I, I struggle with, I struggle with um, mega church pastors that make millions of dollars a year. I think that may be on the other side. Maybe that's solidly in, in another ditch. I want to be careful even how I talk about that because in, in, in some ways, I've received a lot from people that I know are paid very well in, in their ministry careers. So I'm not saying that, yeah, I, I, I'll leave it at that. Second point, there is a danger that compensating a pastor could be a leading indicator of a church outsourcing its spirituality and ministry to a paid staff. Steve and I, Steve Hofer and I had a good conversation a few weeks back about this issue, and he mentioned a pastor that he had gotten to know in Montana who, who by the time Monday rolled around was so burned out and so exhausted that he just had to just take the entire day to sleep. I don't know what, exactly how you said it, Steve, but, but th- this guy, you know, was responsible for everything that was happening in church. All the ministry that was going to happen in church, this guy was responsible for. And churches who pay their pastors can easily run the risk of just outsourcing the job of ministry, all ministry, to a paid staff. And, and I do believe that's something that is not biblical, that we don't want to do. However, any minister of the gospel does have the right to be compensated, respect, respective to their time, their need, and, their, and, the cap, and the capability of their congregation. Paul makes it clear many times as he writes about this that this is not some blanket, blanket thing. He, he makes it clear that... that um, um, yeah, I'll talk about that in a second. But the, what, I was, what I 
what I wanted to point out here is that I think the emphasis of 1 Corinthians 9, the ox has a right to eat the grain that he's treading out. The farmer has a right to, take, to, to consume the fruits of his, of his labor. And so he's saying congregations shouldn't just be freeloaders. Congregations shouldn't just be there just to consume. With, by, by placing the entire responsibility of church leadership on one or two people and, and then you know, putting them in a position where they also have to provide for themselves. Yet, the third point, sorry, fourth point. A minister of the gospel makes the gospel first and compensation second. Just, and this is, Paul repeatedly talks about, even in this passage in 1 Corinthians, he says he's not going to claim his right. He has a right to be compensated, but he doesn't want to use it because he's afraid that it might put a stumbling block in front of other people. So he's, he's, Paul is very aware of his audience as he, he, he says these things. Paul actually said, I believe in maybe Thessalonians, he says he actually worked night and day to provide for himself so that others wouldn't be burdened. Another place he says he robbed other churches by accepting support from them and not accepting support from the church that he was actually working for because he knew that for that church, it was, it was more than they could bear. Maybe it was financially or spiritually, they weren't mature enough to be willing to take that step. So he, he allowed other churches to, to pay his way. So I, I, even in studying this, I, I read a couple stories, kind of horror stories. You know, one pastor in Florida who who denied a 90-year-old woman her funeral because she hadn't been tithing or sent out a collections letter to, um, to a single mom who could bar- barely pay her bills saying her membership was going to be evoked because her tithing wasn't you know, where it needed to be. You know, that is not a biblical way of running either church finances or church pastoral compensation pastors and church leaders, again, they see themselves first as servants of Christ. And, and, and because of that, they're willing to allow themselves in some aspects to uh, maybe, maybe get the short end of the stick sometimes because they realize the real compensation is not actually here. The real compensation is eternal. There doesn't seem to be one single model in scripture that is extremely prescriptive. So there, you know, it doesn't, I think we have incredible flexibility about how we, we, we walk this out uh, faithfully, biblically. Each church needs to figure out what works best to implement the teaching of scripture and not overly burden either the congregation or its leaders. I think that's the goal here. And then the last and final point is that being a church leader, being a pastor is a call and it's not solely a career. And, and I take that from Ephesians 4 where he talks about God giving these gifts as gifts to the church. Uh, career pastors make it more about the progression of compensation than about the opportunity to build up the body of Christ. 
being a pastor is not something you can become just because you have a degree. Not saying that having a degree couldn't help you be a good pastor, but a degree doesn't make you a pastor. There is no compensation in the world that will be greater than having the opportunity to serve the body of Christ and to be, as one 90-year-old guy listened to a couple weeks ago put it, to be completely used up for God. This man was a man who had faithfully served his church, faithfully served businesses, and I, I just watched him as a 90-year-old man talking about the joy that he had as an old, old man. And he was still pressing on, and his goal was, as he says it, to be completely used up for God. So I want to ask you a question. If I were to ask you right now to offer you a job or ask you if you were interested in a job that had incredible opportunity to impact people, but it was extremely time intensive and it would be subjected to intense scrutiny and it would require between five hours or 60 hours a week, depending on the week, and you would be blamed if anything went wrong and it was a lifetime commitment, would you jump on board? Who's going to sign up for that right now? And at the same time, you need to make sure that you provide well for your, for your family, and you need to make sure that you're also a model husband and a model father, and you work for free. I stumbled on a scathing rebuke from the Puritans several hundred years ago that they wrote directly addressing Anabaptists' refusal to compensate their ministers. And what this guy wrote, I can't remember his name, he's, he, he basically said, addressing the Anabaptists, he said, what you guys do is you are forcing people who have a propensity to carnality to be your church leaders. Basically, he's saying, you need independently wealthy people to lead churches. And, and by having that pre, uh, pre-assumed set of criteria, you end up selecting people who may not be the church leaders, the best church leaders, and you bypass the best candidates because you're looking for people that, 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 that have uh, the, the means, the independent wealth that where they could actually operate as a church leader in a volunteer position or a non-paid position. I read, I think I read at some point, or maybe, maybe somebody told me this, I can't remember which, that in the early church, not that the early church is a, you know, the, the, the unerrant model, but in the early church, they actually told their leaders that they couldn't own real estate because they believed that if a leader were to own real estate, that it would, it would add this extra baggage to, to him and, 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 and make it so that he wasn't able to be a good leader because he was too distracted. And I thought, man, that is kind of different than the way that we do things, isn't it? We kind of prefer, hey, if you have this nice portfolio of rental companies, you probably, yeah, maybe you're, you know, next, uh, or rental properties, maybe you'd be a good, be a good church leader. Because we see, we, we have this predisposition to, to um, um, you know, have, you know, need people that, are, have the, the flexibility of time to, to lead in church. So I'm not proposing that every church needs to have a fully paid pastoral team with health benefits and a 401k. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I am saying that there is a great potential that we are missing a blessing on all sides by simply ignoring the scriptural concept. There is 
I believe, a tremendous weakness of the Anabaptist approach that uh, we end up with church leaders who can't go deep, as deep as they need to at least, and who end up burning out. And in general, we ask church leaders to go a mile wide and an inch deep. And this impacts, ends up impacting churches in very real ways. I spoke with a pastor in another church similar to ours in another state, and he, he said this. He, he asked this question. He said, why is it that churches like ours get to 30 or 4 families, and then they either implode or they just start losing people? Why is that? And, and, and his belief is that it's because with an uncompensated pastoral team, that's the max. They can no longer reach around. They can no longer effectively disciple. And so the church becomes, they, the church uh, tends to become more shallow and lack good discipleship. And preaching and teaching become an afterthought. It becomes uh, whoever has a spare few hours to actually put into it. And there's no real depth in it. And, and I think that is a weakness. And it was interesting to hear that from him who, who you know, as, as, as he leads in his own pastoral role in his church. So again, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that compensation is a magic bullet. I don't even know how this church could afford to pay even one person enough to adequately support his family. But I do think that there is at least something that we need to consider here because it is something that I believe that Scripture teaches quite clearly and that there's potentially maybe some creative ways of figuring out some ways to move forward. So with that, I know we're out of time again, but I'm not going to do a part three. This is it. But I have one more thing that I need to say. Twelve years ago, I was asked to be a deacon in this church. And it was very soon after we went through the, the, the leadership pivot, you know, that I talked about where we had a couple leaders and then we ended up with, uh, you know, a fairly large leadership team. And um, I, at that point, um, I made the mistaken assumption that we couldn't afford to compensate our leaders. I, I've always believed in the concept, but I made, I, I, I just... I made the short-sighted assumption that we couldn't, um, we just couldn't do it, that it, it was hard enough to get money to keep our general fund funded. And I also made the mistaken assumption that was that with a board of elders the size as ours was at the time, um, that, that for the moment, we just simply weren't a large enough church to effectively, adequately compensate. And so my logic was, why try we did do a few things over the years. We did leader, leader retreats and, and a few one-off things here and there, but we did nothing that measurably impacted the load that set on the men and their families that were in leadership roles at the time. We had leaders who worked very hard and without complaint and through some very deep valleys. And I know that none of you did it for the money. I know that very well. But I also know that we missed an opportunity during those years to support you in seasons where it would have been very welcome. Specifically, uh, Joe Byler, I know uh, we, we, we missed some opportunities. Uh, John Weaver, DK, um, uh, more recently, Daniel Troyer and Sam and Michael. Um, 
Um, I hope I'm not missing anybody. Um, um, so I also want to own the fact that I was in a place where I could have done something about it. I could have raised this as an issue years ago. I should have been a more proactive leader in this, and I wasn't. I, Daniel and I talked about this many times, like what, you know, maybe it was our job to initiate this conversation, um, but somehow in the paralysis by analysis that some seem to, seem to um, envelop this conversation, we, we, we just never did. And so I just want to tell you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my part in robbing this congregation of the opportunity, opportunity to support and bless the people who were sowing into this church on a weekly or sometimes daily basis. It, it, it is my heart that this message will open that door back up. It does feel like we're still enough of a congregation, a congregational congregation, that, that, that we do need you guys to champion this in some ways if we're going to actually do anything about it. So I'm not here, my heart is not here to, say, to be overly prescriptive. I don't want to say here's exactly what we need to do, but I did want to do my part in be, being faithful to open the door to this conversation and I hope that we can figure out a way forward that makes sense for our, a congregation of our size and our unique leadership model and uh, you know, the, the time and the season that we're in and, and in a way that also honors scripture in the process. So in light of that, and for those of you who are regular attendees here, that is the purpose of the meeting on July 14th. Uh, we would like to, to actually have a more practical conversation about this and talk about what, you know, what do you guys, how do you, what, what should we do to effectively solve this problem moving forward? Or do you think I'm, I am, you know, out in left field and, and, and you, you don't want any part of it? And I'm, you know, you can vocalize that as well. So we would love to hear from any of you who have input on this in the meantime. I will be honest, we have to have some candid conversations about what we want from this church. Because our current giving levels do not allow us to do what I believe we need to do. And that's just the honest truth. $1,100 of our $1,900 average weekly offering, $1,100 of that comes from the same 12 people in this room. So over half of our average offering comes from 12 people. I'm not beating up any, anybody about that. I'm just saying there's, there's some real ways in which we're going to have to change as a congregation if we're going to, actually act, if we're going to effectively change uh, what we've been doing. We are heading into a season. I'm, I'm almost finished, I promise. We're heading into a season culturally where the world desperately needs the church, desperately needs the family of God. I believe that. Uh, the, as as uh, Nate shared this morning, the church is a beacon of hope. It can the church can demonstrate what truth joining with authentic faith looks like. I truly believe that this time in history is not a time where we should pull back from church. 
where we should invest less in church. But I believe it's an opportunity and a time for us to press in to the mission that God has given us as a church and as a body.